Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine where we try to keep you up on the literature one spoonful at a time. Here's a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be spoon-feeding from this week. First off, minding the gap between what we say we stand for and what we do for patients. After that, with the benefits of Alteplase for stroke being called into question so often lately, should we be giving it before endovascular therapy still? After that, steroids to cure a pain in the neck, or at least in the pharynx of children. Fourth, less is more when it comes to febrile seizures. That's good news. And then lastly, a guideline update for chest pain from the AHA. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the growing Megan Hilbert, Jonathan Brewer, Sam Parnell, Nicholas Sarika, and Clay Smith. So without further ado, I bring you the first article, which this week was titled Diagnostic Excellence Through the Lens of Patient-Centeredness Out of the JAMA. This article is really, I mean, just a friendly reminder just to stay on track. I think that anyone you ask will say that their primary concern is their patient, and thus they aim for patient-centered care. Often how we act is not very well aligned with this, though. Seeking primarily to make a diagnosis, start some treatment, and hopefully get to a disposition as soon as possible. These are all important things. No joke, no fooling, I know that but they're often not what's at the forefront of your patient's mind. The concept of patient-centered care became popularized in 2001, and now, 20 years later, it still remains very important and, let's be honest, very popular. So more than just nailing that diagnosis, there are other things to focus on, and this article gives some examples. Such as valuing our patient's vigilance. Remember that you and I, we are the experts in medicine, but they are the experts in themselves, that's the patients. If they say something has changed, then something has changed. Make sure also that there is appropriate follow-up for as many of your patients as possible. Honestly, what good is diagnosis without further care? then remember that what we consider a benign diagnosis is not necessarily going to be benign for the patient. Even benign diagnoses can cause significant pain, cost time and money, which folds into the next point of helping the patient understand their diagnosis. Meet them at their level of understanding and try to tailor your explanations to their cultural circumstances as well. I've no doubt that all of you have heard this all before. But let this serve as a reminder to try to do all of these things consciously, at least for today or your next shift. In a spoonful, patient-centered care belongs in more places than just in hospital mission statements and pamphlets. It belongs in our emergency departments. Then the second article titled, A Randomized Trial of Intravenous Alteplase Before Endovascular Therapy for Stroke, out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Well, it's often standard practice, trials in Asia comparing endovascular therapy with alteplase and endovascular therapy have had mixed results. How about if we try a study in Europe? This trial was an open-label multi-center randomized trial in Europe on patients presenting to hospitals where both alteplase and endovascular therapy could be provided. They were then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either endovascular therapy alone or with IV alteplase first, which is standard of care in Europe. The primary endpoint was functional outcome on a modified Rankin scale at 90 days. 
They were able to include 539 patients, but did not find a statistical significant difference between the two groups. An average score of 3 in the endovascular alone group and 2 in the group with alteplase. So neither superiority nor inferiority of the endovascular alone group was discovered, despite a 5% higher rate of mortality if they didn't get the alteplase. So essentially, this is just going to support the status quo at this time. Already, the 2019 AHA guidelines state that patients eligible for IV alteplase should receive IV alteplase even if mechanical thrombectomy is being considered. This doesn't uncover any reason to alter that practice, honestly. Although endovascular therapy alone was not considered inferior, so there is a chance that less is more. In a spoonful after stroke, endovascular therapy alone performed similarly to alteplase and then endovascular therapy in regards to disability scores at 90 days. Following that, we have the third article titled Corticosteroids in the Treatment of Pediatric Retropharyngeal and Parapharyngeal Abscesses. After that, we have the third article titled Corticosteroids in the Treatment of Pediatric Retropharyngeal and Parapharyngeal Abscesses out of the Journal of Pediatrics. I honestly haven't actually seen one of these, but they are definitely talked about a lot. Retropharyngeal and peripharyngeal abscesses. They're not that common, mostly occurring in children, but when they do occur, they need appropriate care. Some can be managed medically with antibiotics, hydration, and analgesia, but others are going to require surgical drainage on top of that. Our biggest fear here, of course, is losing the airway, which would be because of swelling in the pharynx. So. Are corticosteroids helpful in this case, perhaps even lowering the rates of surgical drainages? This trial was a multi-center retrospective study of children aged 2 months to 8 years old from 2016 to 2019 with a diagnosis of retropharyngeal or parapharyngeal abscess. Provided they didn't have any other complex conditions or neck trauma, then they were included in this study. This amounted to almost 2,300 patients with about 75% not receiving steroids and 25% getting them. The primary outcome was the need for surgical drainage, which occurred less in the corticosteroids group by 30% less. This was statistically significant. They also used less opioids, had shorter lengths of stay by 4 hours, and lower hospital costs. The caveat to that, though, is that more of these patients had delayed surgical drainage by about a factor of 2, and they were also 2.2 times more likely to return to the emergency department within one week. So it seems like these are kind of two different populations, besides the fact that some received steroids and some did not. That said, 30-day hospital admission rates were similar. Other limitations worth mentioning include that this was observational data, with significant heterogeneity regarding corticosteroids and antibiotic use. As well, details about the patient's exam and imaging studies were not available, so we don't actually know much about the abscesses themselves. Overall, this study would support giving steroids to these patients, though. But I'd say it's not definite, and an RCT would be really nice to see here. In a spoonful, the use of corticosteroids in children with retropharyngeal or parapharyngeal abscesses was associated with lower rates of surgical drainage, less opioids, and shorter lengths of stay. Then the fourth article titled Trends in Management of Simple Febrile Seizures at U.S. Children's Hospitals out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Simple febrile seizures, 
are such a good example of us providing quality patient education. There are not many things which are scarier than a seizure. And yet data tells us that patients who meet criteria for simple febrile seizures are safe to send home without any treatments or even any testing, especially not invasive testing. With this in mind, how well have we been doing about not doing all those things these days? This was a retrospective cross-sectional analysis of 49 tertiary care pediatric hospitals across the U.S. from 2005 to 2019, where more than 124,000 children were found to have visited with simple febrile seizures. They tracked the rates of LPs that were done, head CTs, CBCs, hospital admission rates, costs, and the rates of delayed diagnosis of bacterial meningitis. They split the data a bit because of the change in 2011 that then had recommendations for LPs to only be done on low-risk patients. Thankfully, we saw huge declines in these kinds of tests, invasive tests, even before 2011, though. So let's see how much better we've been doing, comparing 2005 to 2019 for all of these numbers, which are not important numbers for you to remember at all. But what's nice is the magnitudes. Let the magnitudes sink into your brain so that at least you can remember that they've changed a lot. So rates of LPs fell from 11.6% down to 0.6%. Head CTs from 10.6 to 1.6. CBCs from 39 to 11. Admission rates from 19 to 5. And costs from 1,500 to 600. All that without a change in the rates of delayed diagnosis of bacterial meningitis over this time which, just to be clear, occurred only in 0.003% of the time in 2019. The authors give primary thanks for this low rate of bacterial meningitis to the rates of H-flu and conjugated pneumococcal vaccinations. Man, I love vaccines! They're so magical! I love vaccines, which has honestly been my opinion since way before 2020. I even started a vaccine podcast in 2016, but that's old news. Either way, recent years have just strengthened my love for vaccines. Back to the article. All that to say was that just because something is scary, like a seizure, which is quite scary for both us and the patients, well, that doesn't mean that we have to throw data out the window. This is super applicable to other things as well. A very good lesson and things that we can accomplish when we just listen to the numbers. I wonder what pathology is going to come next. Looking at you, contrast-induced nephropathy. Looking at you. Anyways, in a spoonful, this well-powered study showed us that from 2005 to 2019, we've improved greatly with regards to how much we're testing patients with febrile seizures. That is to say that we're doing much, much less investigating, without any harm coming from it either, with no change in the rates of bacterial meningitis. Then we have the last article, which is titled a doozy, the 2021 AHA, ACC, ASE, CHEST, S-A-E-M-S-C-C-T-S-C-M-R, Guideline for the Evaluation and Diagnosis of Chest Pain, a report of the American College of Cardiology slash American Heart Association Joint Committee on Clinical Practice Guidelines out of the Journal of Resuscitation. So I'm going to keep the intro short on this just to compensate for the length of the post itself. You and I both know how important a presenting complaint of chest pain is. Here is the AHA's a summary of their most recent guidelines, all cleverly bundled into the acronym CHEST PAINS. Let's get to it. CHEST PAINS. So let's start with C. Chest pain means more than just pain in the chest. 
When we say the word chest pain, what we really want to be saying is anginal equivalent. So pain, pressure, tightness, discomfort in the arms, shoulders, back, jaw, dyspnea, fatigue. These are all what we want to be saying when we say chest pain. And this is so important because how you ask about chest pain to a patient might be taken a little bit too literally if those are the only words that you use. Next, after C comes H. H, high sensitivity is preferred. This one's simple. High sensitivity troponins are better. If your site isn't using them, then hop on the bandwagon. There's room for everybody. Remember that not all assays are equal though. There's a nice website called Compass MI for assay specific cutoffs to rule in or out MIs. Next is E, early care for acute symptoms. This one's really obvious. Time is muscle, so act fast. In some systems, EMS can give aspirin, nitrates, O2, and to do a 12-lead ECG. This could get STEMIs to their balloons faster. S, share the decision-making. It's always tempting to make all the decisions. But if you share the knowledge that you have with your patient, then that patient can likely partake in management choices, especially low-risk patients who are stable. T. Testing is not needed routinely for low-risk patients. This is patient-centered, and if you're not testing, then they're flowing through your department faster. Many don't need urgent testing. Always consider your pretest probability. P. Pathways. Clinical decision pathways should probably be the default. We've covered that the heart score isn't perfect, but if it was, then we wouldn't need you, would we? So be careful, but use the tools that you have to ease your mental burden on shift. The AHA recommends that patients with a heart score of three or less can usually go home. Some studies consider sending patients with heart scores of four to six home, but be careful with that. A, accompanying symptoms. Kind of like we mentioned for anginal equivalents, there are also other symptoms that STEMIs can cause. For example, women are more likely to present with nausea and dyspnea rather than chest pain at all. I for one would like to move us away from calling these kinds of things atypical chest pain, because then we're always going to feel like it's kind of off of our radar. It's atypical. We shouldn't be thinking about atypical as often. When you hear hoofbeats, you should think horses, not zebras. But honestly, this keeps us from providing the care that we should be to, let's be honest, more than half the population. Next is I. Identify patients more likely to benefit from further testing. Easier said than done, of course. But let your pathways guide you. Intermediate and high-risk patients likely benefit from further testing. N. Non-cardiac is in. Atypical is out. Try to use the word non-cardiac if heart disease is not suspected. This helps us point in the right direction. Non-cardiac clearly displays which direction your diagnostics are going. Finally, S. Structured risk assessment should be used. Here's a direct quote. Compared with an unstructured clinical assessment, clinical decision pathways have been shown to decrease unnecessary testing and reduce admissions while maintaining high sensitivity for detection of acute myocardial injury and 30-day major cardiac events. That's it, guys. In a spoonful, the full guidelines are 87 pages of text. The executive summary is 30 pages. My summary of a summary of a summary was less than 500 words, so I probably left some stuff out. Now then, that's it, that's all. Let's summarize, because I love the wrap-up. 
What did we learn today? First off, a reminder to provide good medicine to your patients. The operative word there being patience. They're people too. Keep that in mind for all of your decisions. Second, you can keep pushing that big red thrombolize button while you're calling the endovascular proceduralist for stroke patients. Endovascular therapy alone was non-superior, but also non-inferior to giving Alteplase first. Third, seems like you can go ahead with the steroids for patients with retropharyngeal and parapharyngeal abscesses. It was associated with less pain, lower rates of surgical drainage, and shorter length of stay. That said, an RCT would be a much more appropriate kind of design that we would want to study this sort of thing. Stronger data ought to back this claim. Fourth, when it comes to simple febrile seizures, we can take something of a military approach, and that is to keep it simple stupid. If they meet low-risk criteria, they're unlikely to require further testing. How simple. And then finally, the new AHA guidelines remind us to use high-sensitivity troponins. Also, I know they're kind of dorky, but you probably should use the decision pathways. And then remember that chest pain means much more than just chest pain. Now, you've earned them, we offer them, we have CME credits, which could be yours through our partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles summarized can be found there at the very same place. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe at our website to get our newsletter, which will give you daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.